Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in History podcast, part of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Christophe Odinitz, and our guest today is Agnès Delaye. She is a historian of colonial American history, specializing in 17th century New England, settler colonialism, and the history of enterprise. Her book is Settling the Good Land, Governance and Promotion in John Winthrop's New England. She has also published, I think I counted, 14 academic articles on New England history, and of course, her doctoral dissertation on the individual and the community in John Winthrop's New England. Dr. Delaye uh, teaches at Lyon, in Lyon at the Université Lumière Lyon II and is a member of the interdisciplinary Triangle Research Group, which combines action, discourses, and economic and political thought to better understand the meaning of political ideas and consequences. Last year, she received the rank of habilitation to direct doctoral theses, the highest rank in the French system. Agnès Delahaye, welcome to the New Books in History podcast. Thank you, Christophe. It's great to be here. (laughs) Thank you. Settling the Good Land is an exciting story of the newness of the New World and how these 17th century Englishmen first got interested in in the project and then up and moved across the ocean to put their money and their lives where their mouth is. Would you tell us, who these people were, these settlers of the good land, this new and emerging settler type, as you call them, and what is the scope and argument of your book? Yes. So the um, settlers I studied uh, were part of what is called the Great Migration of English colonists from England to America in the spring of 1630. About 700 people traveled with John Winthrop that particular spring, but eventually it is estimated that about 20,000 people traveled to the coast of New England in that decade. So these settlers were the beginners of English mass settlement on the American coasts. They were families, householders, and their dependents who came from various points across England, but in particular East Anglia, where Uh, John Winthrop himself was from. And they had gathered under the Massachusetts Bay Company, a colonial company, uh, a very small colonial company that had chosen settlement as a business plan to compensate for what had been colonial failures until then on the New England coast. I... um, I focused on John Winthrop because he is um, the ma- a major, the central source, really, on the founding of New England. He is uh, known mostly as the author of the model of Christian charity, extolled by many generations of antiquarians, genealogists, and historians as the first expression of a civil and providential vision of America, the world-famous city upon a hill. Now, the model is in every anthology of early American literature, which makes Winthrop a historical figure of major importance in American memory. His latest biographer, Francis Bremer, called him America's Forgotten Founding Father in 2003. 
Now, in settling the good land, I took a deliberately different approach. I was not so much concerned with the significance of his writing and policies in subsequent American history. Rather, I tried to understand what he knew or could have known about America and colonization in 1630, why he had decided to join a colonial company at the very ripe old age of 41, which was ancient by the standards of those days, and also what understanding he had of his function as colonial governor, what governance in a colonial context actually entailed. In other words, I was interested in the context of his colonial career, not so much in his legacy, even though I addressed this issue in the last chapter of the book. How is it going? Is it good? Yes, perfect. Um, so, okay. who, so who who was this uh, enterprising Englishman, the father of New England? This uh, the father of New England is a big word, but this enterprising Englishman was a lawyer and a lord of the manor of East Anglia. He was born in Groton, which is about forty miles from Cambridge and eighty miles from London. And he um, was the firstborn of a secondborn landowner in the region. And he struggled in his childhood to reach full ownership of uh, his family's land. Just like his father before him, he combined management of that um, uh, holding spread out across East Anglia through marriages and purchases with a legal career in London where he was a clerk practicing land law, uh, recording and arguing conflicts of land ownership, wardships and tenancies between aristocrats, between gentlemen and aristocrats, or between uh, uh, the middling sort of Englishmen and the crown. He was an expert in land law who, at the age of 41, had a sort of moral crisis and decided to put his tremendous clerical energy to the job of colonial governor. Now, if I can explain a little bit what I mean by uh, this crisis. Yes, please. (laughs) Um, um, John Winthrop... um, Always, he's a wonderful um, historical uh, actor to study because he was a prolific writer. There are five volumes of the Winthrop Papers edited by the Massachusetts Historical Society in the early 20th century. Uh, He's written a journal. And um, through through the reading all these sources, uh, comes a very powerful voice. Um, what struck me about him was his tremendous sense of self, which partly comes from his religion, but also from his political ambition. As I said before, he was a landowner and uh, and uh, a lawyer in 17th century England, moving regularly from his land, 80 miles from London, to London, where he spent extensive periods in the inns of court, trying to rise up the uh, social ladder uh, available to uh, the gentry at the time. And at many times in his youth, and he recorded this in his writings, he 
his own sense of self and conviction was pitted against the authority and the glory of men above him. Men who had religion, just like he did, but had glory, had lineage, more land than he hid, than he than he had. Sorry, and um, and uh, this confrontation um, increased as time went by. He was a wonderful family man with many children, um, um, many boys, especially and limited land. His career in land law was meant to increase opportunities for social and financial advancement, which in 1629 were proving rather limited. His sons, his older sons, didn't have a calling, didn't really have a profession. And his second son, Henry, who tried his hand at settling, planting tobacco in Barbados, had come back to, on, to London and seduced his cousin under, under his uncle's nose, jeopardizing the reputation that Winthrop had spent his entire life building by being an exemplary clerk, a loyal representative, uh, a messenger for the different political circles in East Anglia and around London, someone people could trust. And when he was hired by the the Massachusetts Bay Company, all the sources pointed to that reputation as an exemplary land lawyer, someone who was expert in managing land disputes, who understood property and who understood the privileges that came with that. It just so happened that in at the age of 41, he had reached the limits of what English society could afford him. And he decided to leave for that reason, for opportunity. And the word sounds very contemporary and very modern, but it's actually all over English promotion at the time. The opportunity for something that uh, Winthrop valued about, above all else, and that was competency. The opportunity to be independent, not to be dependent on anyone for income, income to live on, but also to pass on to one's children. That, that I, I really appreciate the psychological picture that you give us and how his he, he's cramped and he can't get out and achieve what he wants. And he, as you said, he had seven boys and could not provide for them in, in the old world. Um, and that this word competency comes up many times in, in, in this text um, and also liberty. Um, but let me ask you something that was confusing to me because this is for every American child. This is not a new subject. We have this in elementary school, but we don't have a complete picture. And so when I remember learning about the pilgrims around Thanksgiving as a, as a, as a very young child, it was always about um, seeking freedom uh, of, of religion as, as these Puritans. Um, and indeed, uh, Winthrop was a, was a devout um, Puritan. But I was so surprised to see how he could thrive or at least uh, make his way in in England um, at that time, and and there's a quotation uh, you give us from John Smith of Virginia in on page uh, um, 167, praising the chief undertakers of the Massachusetts Bay Company as gentlemen of good estates, some of 500, some of a thousand pound of uh, land a year, men of good credit, well beloved in their country, and good Catholic Protestants, which means um, the Reformed Church of England. 
even though there were among them a few discontented Anabaptists, Papists, Puritans, Separatists, and such factuous humorists. So um, why then does historiography cling to the image of the oppressed pilgrims uh, in the wilderness finding a new, a new safe haven to start a new society? Well, it's a very appealing image. It's a very uh, um, uh, powerful uh, idea of uh, history moving in a certain direction towards more religion, towards more progress. It was repeated time and again over the 19th century by Romantic historians who who believed, um, who, who described American history as a continuation of European history westward. And the focus on uh, local agents of uh, motivated by religious purity um, made sense in that romantic perspective at a time when the nation was trying to find uh, commonality um, experiences that that uh, individual Americans could uh, look back on and find meaning in. Um, in the 1950s, when Perry Miller established the, the, the Puritan paradigm um, of um, the errand of the Puritans into the wilderness, he uh, established a tradition, a historiographic tradition, that required of historians to conceive of these experiences through the prism of Puritanism, because it was shared by uh, people in Old and New England, so it connected both spaces and it created a continuum of ideas, the progress of the Reformation from the Old World to the New World. Uh, but they focused essentially on religion as culture. Puritanism in New England studies is all pervasive. It explains everything from uh, people's child-rearing habits to what they ate, to how they considered nature and the environment. I mean, there are hundreds of books about Puritanism in New England, and I read them as a student of American history, of interested in colonial history, I read all these books. And all the secondary sources seem to point to John Winthrop. He was quoted everywhere, and he represented power in that colony. So I decided to go and look for myself. And I was sitting one day in the British Library, in the rare book, uh, rare books reading room at the British Library with the 1996 Harvard edition of the journal. And I started reading it from page one. And suddenly, it was a revelation, I have to say. Suddenly, a world, I, was, I encountered the world that for a reason I couldn't explain then, religion had not described. A world of contest and struggle for land, for survival, for resources. Uh, that was uh, worlds away from the expectations I had of what a Puritan society would be. Inward-looking, pre-modern, and not interested in either trade or social change. And when I started reading the journal, I saw the opposite of that. I discovered a voice, someone who was witness to uh, a series of events that uh, were unprecedented in the history of English colonization. 
and I wanted to understand where he had built these expectations about colonization. So I started reading promotion, going back, reading English promotional texts, looking for representations of America, its landscape, its peoples, about what colonization meant and how to best organize and run it. And I found that actually promotional writers were anything but original. Um, when England entered the race for American possession a century after the Spanish, there were many, many precedents of uh, conquests and war, and uh, uh, some colonies had disappeared. A lot of business failure, a lot of business failure. And then I, ident I traced the idea of settlement or the idea of a permanent appropriation of American land by English families to the campaign by Sir Walter Raleigh in the mid-80s. He had um, agents and promoters, Richard Hackloyd the Elder and his nephew, Richard Hackloyd the Younger, who proposed that the key to England's imperial success would be to establish enough ports and trading posts in America to support the English fleet all year round as it competed at sea with other nations for Spanish treasure. The next step in this process was the founding the creation of commercial companies in the 1610s under James I and the pivotal role of John Smith in articulating the role of settlers in making England succeed in spite of its considerable, considerable delay and the apparent neglect of its sovereign. John and so he's, um, he's telling the truth. He's correct that this is a, a large group of people, some quite mainstream, but Yes, he's, uh, he's correct. And John Smith has, speaks from experience. I think most historians agree on how significant his writings on Virginia and later New England were. Um, he uh, basically set, uh, 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 described a hierarchy of agents of colonization. Investors in London stayed at home. They enjoyed the comfort of their chimney corners, quote unquote, which is a phrase that you see coming up again and again in promotion, while settlers risked life and limb to expand English sovereignty in America. They deserved proper reward for their efforts. Um, Smith told again and again how he had been abandoned by the investors of the Virginia Company, betrayed by them when they realized that returns weren't coming quick enough. They just abandoned the settlers to their fate. Now, John Smith argued that those who chose colonization should reap the fruit of their labor, that is, have access to some form of full ownership of land in America and enough autonomy and self-government to fulfill their plans. So I believe this is a central um, um, moment in the history of settlement when John Smith actually argues that settlers are real and they are the only serious agents of colonization. I think that's a very important point. And I'll just add that I was also surprised to learn from your book that the pilgrims of the Mayflower were not sailing from Britain, but from the Netherlands, where they had been for some time. Um, but they found uh, it too decadent there, which I suppose one can find in the Netherlands to this day, but that they included ordinary adventurers, uh, as you call them, some, some of them Leideners from, from there. And so even so, there weren't, there weren't just 
this religious group. It was all kinds of people. But this brings me to a second question, which was also a surprise, perhaps it's a third surprise already, is how much back and forth there is. I sort of imagined that these colonists came to this new world left alone. But in fact, they go there. The reason they're doing all this promotional writing is for continual uh, support from from England. So how how, how does this um, uh, genre of promotional writing and the the continuous reporting back to the investors, it really links I mean, the Atlantic is a small, small body of water, but it links both both coasts. Uh, and so New England um, keeps one foot in in Old England. And that was a that was a, an astonishing uh, discovery from from reading your text. Would you talk about that um, that genre of writing and, and what it achieved and how much back and forth there was? Yes. Colonization, I believe, it was a public act. You know, before land claims became real, they were first signified through maps that were uh, tra- uh, transformed, added to, and circulated across Europe. Um, uh, claiming possession of land in America only became real if other people could uh, um, be informed of of that phenomenon. So colonization was a public act. There was there were maps, but there were also narratives. Now. Uh, explorers and colonizers uh, did, needed publicity to generate support. They needed support because even if they they packed their ships full, they would only travel over with enough supplies to last them through one winter. They knew that over there they would be completely destitute. So they needed people at home who could uh, uh, maintain their reputation to creditors and fill up the ships that came back with additional supplies or more labor laborers to help them uh, build their settlements in America. So this was a, a relationship that was that was an essential part of the business. Um, men in England who wanted to invest in colonial ventures for whatever reason expected some form of return. They knew that returns weren't immediate. They, they the the average time of, of financial returns was about seven years. So for during these years, connections had to be maintained with merchants in England, captains who carried those goods back and forth across the ocean, and settlers themselves in New England who labored to uh, fill the ships with uh, timber and fish and uh, anything that infer naturally that they could uh, sell back in England uh, to pay their creditors and buy more supplies. Such Were those as the chief food. items that traveled back to uh, England? Timber, yes. fish, and beaver pelt. Yes, t- uh, timber, fish, and uh, beaver pelts. And um, but but we we shouldn't think of of New England trade as solely uh, circulating between the old world and the new. Um, more uh, immediately. New England ships traveled the American coasts and uh, all the way to the Caribbean. And so very quickly from the mid-1630s, that is five years after um, the beginnings of settlement, Winthrop records in his in his uh, journal that he received an alligator from a governor in Barbados. Uh, he mentions sugar and cotton and all sorts of goods that English and European colonists in general, not just English colonists, exchanged uh, along the coast. So it's not just that 
settlers depend on people in England. They also depend on other colonizers and colonists along the coast. And they naturally depend also on the Indian trade. So instead of a closed up world, you know, the, the Puritans walking in the snow towards their church, you know, isolated in the wilderness and a hostile nature, that is not at all the picture that the journal gives. On the contrary, it describes a world that is open to absolutely all areas of the Atlantic world, including Africa. And Winthrop in particular cherished his relationships with his favorite captains who um, who could be counted on to bring grain when there wasn't enough corn to eat or to uh, bring enough sugar for New England landowners to start making rum for the, from the 1640s and brag about how popular their rum was in Virginia in the Caribbean. So we really have to think of it as an open world, not, not a closed-up world on religion and the church. Oh, that's, that's very important. You mentioned maps. I love how many maps there are in your book, uh, many of them in color. And I was looking at the map of uh, Massachusetts Bay. I think it's on 189. Um, and I, I lived there for three years. And it's interesting to see Newton as New Town or Watertown as Watertown or the Charles River. I remember going jogging there. What was it like 400 years ago in 1631 when Winthrop got off of his ship? And what did he find? What did it look like? How did it, what, what kind of a world should we imagine when we look at these, look at these maps? Well, certainly not an empty world. Um, it was a world, um, <laughs> Massachusetts was chosen by the uh, Massachusetts Bay Company, whose, whose investors came from other uh, colonial companies uh, at work in England at the time, and they had experienced um, the uh, fish, the fisheries on the northern banks. So they knew that the New England coast was full of wood, but also full of rivers. And on the rivers were marshland and grassland on which they uh, immediately began raising cattle for survival and also for trade, um, salt meat and cattle hides um, that you know, a lot of uh, ships were happy to find when they stopped over. So imagine a world that to the English looked very much like England because it combined uh, plain land with mountains, woodland, and a climate that was definitely colder than England, but had nothing of the seasoning uh, that had made, uh, uh, that had um, given Virginia such a bad reputation. Um, the colder weather meant fewer diseases. So imagine a world where there are woods, uh, cleared land, Indian or indigenous farmland uh, that the English weren't always apt at seeing or discovering, but they were very good at finding corn stalks to steal from in the early days. Um, but it is a word, world that is between land and sea. The colonists rely on water for trade, for communication, for food. So they settle in various points across the bay at the mouth of the many rivers of the bay to capture the beaver trade that will be traveling down these rivers, but also to have a point of access to the interior where settlements can continue 
to progress along the banks of the river. So it's a very uh, utilitarian view of the landscape, which is, you know, a spread out settlement in crucial access points that are going to make trade and agriculture possible in the quickest possible way. So what kind of population can we uh, imagine? You said 20,000 came over the course of the decade, but I'm guessing that's for the entire New World possessions of, of England. How many people might have lived uh, in in the Massachusetts uh, Bay Colony, um, about uh, at what point? Uh, in Let's the, say sixteen thirty five or something. Sixteen thirty five, you would have expected between eight thousand and ten thousand people. That's um, a lot. That's a lot, and and that's a lot of people gathered again across a vast territory. Um, they come in. Uh, on various ships, and then when they get to uh, the land, uh, they undergo what historians have called the great reshuffling. That is, they organize themselves into groups by family groups or regional affiliation or Puritan beliefs. Um, some are, are, are keener to follow the teaching of one minister over another, and that will be the reason why they'll go to that town instead of that town. Uh, and pr- pr- very quickly, they, they um, are given land. Um, surveyors are a very important part of land management in Massachusetts. Um, plots of land on which they are obliged to work immediately or within three years. If within three years they haven't farmed the land that the corporation has given them, they lose it. So they come over and they cut down trees and they plant corn or they raise cattle if they are very closer to the grassland of the riverbanks. Uh, they plant orchards. They have a lot of hogs as well. So they combine subsistence agriculture uh, with um, cattle raising in order to generate a little bit of surplus that circulates across the bay. Uh, what fascinated me in particular was how sophisticated their the, the magistrates were in thinking about infrastructure, that they were very quickly market towns and market days um, uh, registered in the, in the minutes of the corporation, that the corporation paid for um, um, boats uh, um, to uh, connect various points around the bay. There was a real awareness on their part that people should be connected in some way and circulate between settlements in order to exchange their goods, but also maybe uh, communicate or visit families. So imagine a landscape dotted with villages that do not look like the New England village that we imagine. We imagine the white steeple and a few houses in the middle surrounded by woodland. It's not really what New England towns look like. They certainly have a core and the core is the meeting house, which is it is the church, but it's also the place of social and political interaction, um, a market possibly on certain days, and uh, a first circle of habitations around that meeting house, uh, which will combine uh, ownership by the richer colonists, the leaders of each town, but also poor farmers who live near the center to have access to communal fields and woods. But then each mile, each town was about six miles, six square miles, which is quite a vast territories. So 
there are other circles, outer circles, where younger farmers, maybe poor farmers live and raise cattle or grain in, uh, as tenants to other landowners. And little by little, land is cleared between those outer farms and the inner farms. And that's how these settlements over time will connect into one territory. But it will never be just one settler territory. There are native villages and native communities that continue to reside uh, in that land and to interact with settlers as well. It is what, what historians have called a hybrid land, hybrid land. Hybrid land. Uh, hybrid land. Would, yes. Would you tell us about the the native villages and the um, inclusion of uh, indigenous American uh, Indians and also their dispossession and exploitation and just how how that changed over the course of the decade? And um, you 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 write there was never any peace in New England, but a continuous process of rumors, intimidation, conflicts, and negotiation, which Winthrop navigated with unwavering confidence in his own racial superiority. And, um, would you t- tell, tell us how, how this uh, played out? Well, this is a great question. It's a very, very difficult one for many reasons. Uh, first, a little um, uh, caveat or disclaimer. I am, I am French, um, and I have no... Um, I've always understood that um, doing indigenous history itself was was beyond my capabilities uh, because I don't uh, speak any indigenous languages and I have no connection or not even proximity with indigenous communities or historians who are at present doing amazing work, resurrecting a past that has been negated by the uh, dominance of Eurocentric views of what happened on the ground. Uh, violence, I think, in New England it was part of was an integral part of the settlers' lives for for many reasons. Uh, first, colonization is violence. Appropriating land that doesn't belong to you is a form of violence. The settlers also incorporated um, indigenous children and women in particular into their households and giving them new names and new identities and also forbidding that they should maintain kinship ties uh, with with their kin and and their tribes in the West. As settlement progressed, the population increased and more land was needed Uh, Because the business model of the Massachusetts Bay Company included cattle, the settlers had their very quickly had their eyes on rivers along the Long Island Sound, and in particular, the Connecticut River, which marked sort of the western limit of what the uh, founding charter of 1629 gave them as territory. So from the mid-1630s, they are already busy trying to build trading forts and and smaller settlements on the Connecticut River. So they travel mostly by sea, but uh, Winthrop is very clear that the point in the end is to have contiguous settlement from Massachusetts Bay all the way to Connecticut. And that means running across uh, Narragansett Territory, Neantic Territory, Nipmuc Territory, and the Massachusetts as well. So the plan is always for expansion. And the manners, uh, the manner uh, with which this expansion happened uh, becomes 
even um, always more violent throughout the decade until the 16 uh, the year 1637-38 and what is known as the Pequot War, which was basically a series of military expeditions on behalf of the Massachusetts Bay Company to uh, inflict, and the term is theirs, inflict terror upon indigenous peoples residing in those areas to make them run away. So there are instances of, of uh you know, there are um, armed conflicts, isolated armed conflicts between individual towns or planters and their indigenous neighbors. And there is, in the mid-1630s, this, this mass, massive campaign of, uh, of terror against indigenous peoples in the region. Um, and um, that is the beginning also of uh, the use of slavery, indigenous slavery, and uh, which I believe increased the degree of violence greatly um, in the settlement, you know, um, marking Indian bodies, separating families, selling people off to regions that were very distant and uh, from which they did not expect it, expect them to return. So the brutality of slavery that we uh, think of mostly in the southern colonies was also at work in New England from very, very early on. So this is what I mean by no peace in New England. Expansion was always going to continue and violence uh, was the daily lot of settlers because their very act of appropriation, colonization, was itself a violent act. And um, this is the, may I ask, this is the very beginning of, of, of Atlantic slavery. And when um, Henry Winthrop was in Barbados, he, it sounds to me when he was planting those failed tobacco fields, he didn't have slaves yet, right? But here you tell us Indian women and children were sold to Bermuda, which shocks me again, because you would think women and children wouldn't be able to do that tropical um, that, that, that forced labor. Could you describe what this slavery looked like, um, if, you, if you can? Well, um, I, I can... These, these um, captives uh, were war loot. They were... Uh, from, from what the, settler, the letters of the settlers and, and Winthrop's narrative, the policy was to, if possible, kill Indian warriors and there are very gruesome passages where pieces of um, men's bodies, scalps and ears um, are circulated across the settlement as proof of their death. So the idea of killing warriors is, of course, to dismantle and to, to, to uh, jeopardize uh, indigenous alliances um, at work in the region. Um, that's what happens with men, mostly. Women and children... Uh, become captive in this just war, this war of conquest that the settlers called just war. And they are, uh, for many, incorporated into settler households where there's always a great need for additional labor or sold um, abroad as a way to empty villages, simply empty villages for more land for Europeans to settle on. It sounds very brutal, but it is in the text, and it is very much what Winthrop describes. Um, I think if, if the, my second chapter on the pilgrims also demonstrates that this was the way colonization was envisaged by the English when they decided to settle, there was always that fear, rumor, 
you know, a sort of doubt as to the legitimacy of their land occupation because they're scared. And uh, there are rumors circulating all the time about how the Indians want to kill them all um, and uh, how they're always in danger. So they, they, they proceed by inversion. Uh, they negate the violence of their own actions, which is to come in, uh, steal corn, occupy Indian farmland because it's already partly cleared, letting their hogs roam the countryside and destroy Indian crops, uh, which leads to famine and weakness uh, among these these people, these indigenous indigenous people. And um, there is this strategy of slow encroachment onto indigenous land that they justify as self-defense. So the rumors are here to explain why they used weapons. That's in the narratives. Now in the letters that they exchange, the, the policy is, is, is very simple. It's acquisitiveness. So capture bodies, sell the, use them as laborers or sell them for profit and uh, destroy villages because they're simply in the way. And uh, that's in the sources. And it's uh, sometimes difficult to read. But I think it's important to understand that um, it happened. Now, the biggest, well, not the biggest, of course, because, you know, nothing is worse than war or terror or locking people into a fort and setting it on fire. Um, But the violence that Winthrop exerts, he's no warlord and he's no soldier. He's He's a lawyer and he believes in constitutionality and the law. And his way of justifying this colonizing policy is simply to silence indigenous agency. He does not, uh, he, he describes sachems who come to Boston to negotiate treaties and ownership with him in a very stereotypical monolithic matter, manner. Um, they are Indians, therefore they're always the same. Um, they are lazy, uh, they're mischievous. Sometimes they're reliable if it's useful. But, you know, he resorts to a lot of racial stereotypes. He, has, he, he abides by a very strong racialized view of how the land should be his and therefore these people should go. Yeah, and but, he but makes I think that also shows their history. humanity in his eyes, doesn't it? That uh, he needs them to submit and to surrender there's uh, passages of, you know, some, I forgot the, which which leader it was, but he places Winthrop's hand on his heart and says, this heart is your heart and my men are your men. And, um, but right, there's always it? the question, there's always the question of veracity, you see, the whole yes. point of, of focusing on promotion was to say, if, if colonization is a public act, this record of events, is it a truthful record or does it serve? A particular purpose, which is to, to, to defend a form of land occupation that was unprecedented, uh, remarkably violent, and, uh, and that needed to be accounted for um, abroad in England, but also in other areas of Atlantic colonization. So I think that that public dimension of, of promotion uh, forces us to doubt pretty much every statement that Winthrop makes, but to read his statements with his in mind the uh, corporate structure he was uh, working within and the commission that he valued so much uh, once he was elected to the company 
And that commission required that he pursued the interests of the corporation. And the interests of the corporation were sustainability, solvency, and always more land. And that necessarily came into conflict with, you know, um, um, the interests of, of the French in the north, the Dutch in the south, also the pilgrims to a certain extent, and most importantly, indigenous peoples. I think that's why Richard Dunn, who's worked so much on John Winthrop, has this wonderful phrase. He says, well, for some of us, John Winthrop is one of the great figures of American history, but for others, quote, he is the man you love to hate. Unquote. And I think it's true, the vindictiveness and the, and the, and the brutality of his speech and his writing sometimes is, is, is very astounding. And to me, it testifies of his sense of scientificity, his awareness that what was happening in New England was simply a new form of collective political existence that was English in origin, but belonged to a space that was completely new. And uh, that justified that they invented so many rules of demeanor and behavior, etc. So I think that's why I find him fascinating. The fact that he knew that colonization was only at its beginning and that settlement within the, the wider methods of colonizing that Europeans were practicing was particular and was unique. Well, I, uh, yes, and I, I agree that everything he has written, especially on the subject of the native peoples, was for the consumption of his um, investors back home, or I should say back across the ocean, not, not back home. But um, my, uh, for example, the seal of the Massachusetts Bay Company, which has, a, which has an Indian man pointing his bow toward the ground in peace and standing between two trees, you, you write, as if it were a gate to a land of resources and a little speech bubble coming out of his mouth saying, come and help us or something <laughs> like, like that. It, um, at, it's not that they thought the indigenous people were animals. They had to tell a story where they were saving the poor benighted uh, savages from, from themselves, even as they knew that they were um, killing and terrorizing, you say, you know, your quotation of terror um, mm -hmm. and selling them off. It, that for me is very interesting, especially how much, how, how steeped, this writing is is in the gospel and in the city on a hill um, that he mm. could hold both of those at the same time uh, in his in his rhetoric and, and in his imagination. Well, that's why the, the the expression "the good land" comes from the Bible, of course, um, uh, Numbers and Deuteronomy, and it it is the land of promise. It's Canaan, the land that God promises to His people, and. The Puritans weren't the first and the only ones to use this formulation. Uh, religious exceptionalism was at work in Spanish colonization as well. Every European, European nation claimed to own true religion and to be able to save the um, uh, indigenous uh, or the native peoples from um, obscurity and, uh, and damnation by converting them. So this was, to me, this was really a trope of uh, promotional literature that was shared across um, many nations, um, European nations colonizing in the Americas at the time. Um, I, su I suppose we should add that this is exactly at the time of the Thirty Years' War, where Europeans were equally happy to murder other Europeans in extraordinary numbers 
I think something like a third of Central Europe was was wiped out between Protestants yeah. and Catholics, and often um, Protestants and Catholics united against other Protestants uh, and Catholics. So it's not reserved for uh, indigenous populations. Yes, and there isn't one way of looking at appropriation. There isn't one um, uniform view of indigenous peoples. They are actually competing visions. Winthrop himself could, in one uh, uh, letter or pamphlet, talk about America as a vacuum domicile, as an empty land where there were no people. Well, when obviously that was completely untrue, and and he knew it. So in other times, uh, Native Americans are used as foils, pushing forward the narrative and the action towards um, towards um, the success of the business. Um, if we remember that colonization is a public act and a commercial enterprise, then we can accommodate these different versions because. Um, Colonizers did not encounter the same populations every time, um, and political alliances also shifted um, in America as time went on. So instead of having one monolithic view of the Puritan errand as as one goal, and it's it's interesting. It's more interesting to me to think of this as what Elizabeth Menke calls spaces of power. So think of it as spaces that are shared, contested by many actors with various interests. It's not as grand as the sweeping march forward of American liberty, but it's also it's much more interesting in terms of experience, uh, diversity, uh, uh, hybridity, and also the imagination. Because I got to um, discover and imagine. We have to realize we have no visual representation of colonial America, or very few. The first engravings describing the cities date from the 1740s, 1750s. Before that, we have no actual images of what the landscape looked like, what the towns looked like, or what the daily existence of the colonists uh, felt like to them. And I think by looking at space rather than ideas, uh, conflict and contestation, rather than the inevitable conquest of or march of American liberty over the land, we uh, discover uh, varieties of experiences, those of indigenous people, of course, but also women. Um, we hear very little about them. I think in the future there'll be much more research about how women understood their role in the colonizing process, because I'm sure you've you've noticed by reading my book how much masculinity <laughs> figures very strongly in Winthrop's self-perception, um, because competency was a masculine goal for the gentry, you know, independence from a father or a father-in-law or an aristocrat was a form of manhood. In order to reach manhood, you had to become independent. And that is very much in Winthrop's writing throughout his entire career. And I, I noticed that the, the, the role of women, at least in the religious or the view in your chapter on liberty is just for a, um, procreation, right? It's mm. an, it's another form of expansion, just like more land, it's yeah. more 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 people, and that the sexual crimes that uh, that resulted in conception were often not punished, and the and the sexual crimes that did not 
uh, especially homosexual crimes and things like that, were punished mm. severely. Absolutely. So what is land if it's empty? The point of traveling over and, and conquering it is to fill it. Fill it with people and villages and fields and cows and, you know, occupy it really, a form of occupation. And for that, you need children. And, uh, and large families, Winthrop himself uh, had many, many children, even though he lost many. And uh, he was, a, uh, I think, a, a very devoted family man. I mean, we shouldn't just imagine, a, um, you know, the, the, um, the horrible Puritan tyrant who is so repressed and, you know, had no ability for fun or centrality. I think that's, that doesn't apply to him. He, um, he, he loves marriage. He loves the company of his wife. He, he enjoys uh, the physicality of marriage as well. Um, but um, he really believes that women, uh, that marriage serves one purpose, which is to uh, grow, uh, to have children and, uh, and acquire more land to keep in the family. So the size of land, of the holding and the size of the family kind of go together. And um, I think that's, that's something that uh, settler colonial uh, scholars will recognize. Uh, settler societies uh, uh, accord a lot of, uh, um, dedicate a lot of their attention to the health of the family. I think that is a great uh, place to stop. And I want to um, thank thank you again. And just, just to tell our uh, listeners that Settling the Good Land um, is uh, published by Brill. And it's very easy for the non-specialist to read, extremely accessible, a very quick 300 pages with lots of colorful <laughs> maps and um, a, just a magisterial and a supremely engaging work. So um, Dr. Delay, I think, thank you so much for speaking with us this morning. Thank you. It's been wonderful.